you idlers, you wasters, you fashion plates. Hello and welcome to Pod Hard, all you action listeners. No, 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 action viewers, I guess it is. My name is Jonas Högberg and uh, together with... Anders Hultqvist. We make this podcast about action movies and uh, we have started to take an entirely different take on everything. We're taking it from the top, from the beginning, and we're moving through history, tracking... The development of action movie cinema. Yeah, we're more or less done with that. No, no, no. It's continuing, man. I mean, they've established everything now. Yeah, that's true. So now we're just rocking out. I'm pretty tired today. I haven't slept. And you've been working long hours. But I took a walk to clear my head uh, a bit. But uh, we'll we'll see how it uh, goes. Now we're here to carve an A for action in your forehead. Wow. Okay, let's do it. So anyway, we have uh, gotten to 1920. Yeah, 100 years, sure. 100 years. And this is, in my mind, it's a seminal year for action movie cinema. We'll be talking about two guys this episode, Douglas Fairbanks and Buster Keaton. And 1920, Buster Keaton got started in his own studio making his own movies away from Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, developing his own style making all these classic action slapstick movie magic cinema. 1920 was also the beginning for Douglas Fairbanks' swashbuckling era, where he started making costume movies and uh, being all camp and fantastic. So in my mind, this is one hell of a year. Yeah, what did he call those earlier modern day comedies? Uh, Shoe and... uh... Tie movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> you wear shoes, you wear ties. It's a modern movie. We were talking about that he hinted at the swashbuckling era in the his earlier movie, A Modern Musketeer. But now he's going full feature length musketeering, I guess. So in this episode, we'll be talking about Mark of Sorrow, which was Douglas Fairbanks' uh, super smash hit. That definitely made sure that he was the big star moving forward action-wise and maybe all everything-wise. We'll also start, since this will be the first episode for the 1920s, we will be um, giving you guys our thoughts on which Buster Keaton movie of the year you need to watch. Since uh, Buster Keaton makes fantastic movies every year in the 20s. I mean, uh, those other guys are continuing churning out stuff as well. Harold Lloyd has uh, some pretty fun uh, car chase hijinks in Get Out and Get Under. As we move forward in the 20s, we'll definitely get back to Harold Lloyd. But this is 1920. Okay, so uh, let's talk Buster Keaton. He made uh, like uh, four or five movies. So there's a lot of things to dissect, I guess. He made his last Roscoe Arbuckle movie called The Garage. 
And then he went into making movies under his own name. He took over Charlie Chaplin's movie studio and it was renamed the Keaton Studio. So he started off making great stuff from the get-go. Movies like The Scarecrow, Convict 13, The Saphead. It was a feature movie that he made on recommendation actually from Douglas Fairbanks. But the movie we'll be talking about uh, this week is One Week. One Week is at least my favorite uh, Buster Keaton movie for 1920 and it is uh, a hoot when you're making these compilation movies on YouTube about uh, the greatest stunts of Buster Keaton. You'll be having uh, a couple from this movie. The plot is uh, about uh, Buster and his bride just married. They are getting a pre-model house from Buster's uncle. And this was a thing in the late uh, 10s. This is actually a thing that Buster Keaton is spoofing, that a lot of houses were coming in these pre-build packages, almost like IKEA houses. You had uh, your walls, your <laughs> floor, and your uh, top, I guess. And then you had a house, and you could just pop it up. So uh, this is uh, the main plot of the movie, but the movie doesn't get started there. No, 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 no. It gets started in a wacky stunt on the, I guess, uh, freeway. No, not the freeway. Buster Keaton and his bride have just been married. They're getting a ride from, uh, this is very weird, Buster's rival for the bride. Why? <laughs> That's so... Handy Hank, the fellow she turned down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why... Is Handy Hank around? And why does he drive the car? He's this usual looking scumbag uh, character in these movies <laughs> as, as well. Quite obvious why she turned him down. Yeah, he, he's sort of a sleazy character, Handy Hank. And I mean, the name says it all, Handy Hank. I think it's Handsy Hank. And he tries to get a bit handsy in this uh, first stunt. He's uh, oogling the couple when they're trying to kiss in the back seat. Just after a couple of seconds, they get enough. And when another car is passing them by, they elope. <laughs> they jump over to the other car. And Buster gets hanging between the cars with his legs. Sort of like uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme when he was... Um, doing his split across the Volvo um, big trucks, the commercial that he made. Yeah, I've always thought that uh, this current era, Jean-Claude Van Damme, would play a pretty good uh, older Buster Keaton in a biopic. I, I know what you mean. It's sort of the hanging face, uh, sort of. Pretty funny that there's a Van Damme moment here. <laughs> it's a connection. And then all of a sudden a motorcyclist uh, comes in between and picks up Buster and, <laughs> and, and uh, drives off with him. Yeah, they go one step beyond. Yeah, what uh, Van Damme could do. Yeah, Buster Keaton always takes it another step. Buster and the uh, motorcyclist, they, they crash. And uh, then they're trying to build a house. And we're getting a lot of good stunts. They're like flipping a wall that the bride is on the top floor and Buster on the second. They're flipping the wall so that the top is going to the, the bottom and the bottom is going to the top. Sybil Seely puts in some great work in this one as well. She's playing Buster's wife. You, of course, have this great uh, stunt that uh, Jackie Chan, I think, 
think, made an homage to in Mr. Nice Guy when he's almost uh, walking out of a door on top of a, like, two, three stories up, and he's almost walking out into thin air from a door. Buster does the same thing here, only he has constructed the house uh, wrong, since Handy Hank has switched out uh, numbers on the building models. Yeah, we do love to get back to Mr. Nice Guy, one of our favorites. Oh yeah, baby. This movie has a great tempo. It's shock full of set pieces and stunts and gags. When the storm arrives, feels kind of like a, a small scale tryout for storm sequence in Steamboat Bill Jr. in 1928. It's really well made. Yeah, they're doing great things uh, with the spinning of the house. I read that they built the house on a turntable, so they only needed to... uh, To scratch it. Spin the turntable so the house spun along. There is some great stuff where Buster is trying to get into the house when it's spinning around. Finally, when he gets in, everything is falling around. Eventually, he gets out uh, himself. I I sort of thought that may be an inspiration for some scenes in Evil Dead as well. Uh, where, you know, everything is crazy in the house. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, I can see that. Edit out a couple of scenes here and put some horror music on it and, and it, it, it could be pretty scary stuff. M- maybe inspired a Japanese movie, Haosu, or House as well. It's got pretty weird stuff going on with houses. I can imagine. Well, eventually the house gets uh, totaled when a train... Uh, <laughs> tumbles through it. That's a great action sequence as well. Buster Keaton, mm, he he makes great action scenes. Just uh, put the camera down and make some crazy shit happen and uh, well, you're golden. The way he carries himself in all these scenes, his body control, even if he's just walking or even if he's just standing around, I mean, he's got this total control over his uh, corpus. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, his corpus, yeah. Douglas Fairbanks is also kind of a, a physical presence. They really own the screen when they're on it. Although Fairbanks does have this kind of weird skulking frame sometimes when he appears. All grins and a bit hunched. But he he's there. They're very physical actors. That's a great uh, comment, actually. One wonders why Douglas Fairbanks was like uh, such a girl fan favorite. He was sort of a, a weird uh, character, more more or less. It's hard to describe, but uh, check out a couple of Fairbanks flicks, and you'll see him enter rooms. He would have been great as the hunchback of Notre Dame. Fairbanks had uh, two main characters treats I guess that he employed in almost every of his movie his acrobatics that were excellent I mean even in his public appearances he would like climb buildings and do stuff like that and would always be on the run he wouldn't stand still for nothing for no man he was always on the lamb. his other main thing is the Fairbanks smile in uh, capital letters that was a thing almost from his first movie Everybody loved the Fairbanks smile. Often it's a Fairbanks laugh, more or less. It's both charming and off-putting, in a way. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. He kind of overdoes it a bit, I'd say. He overdoes it definitely in Mark of Sorrow. Yeah, well, he's a fantastic character, and, uh, you know, since he is the smiling hero, he's sort of like the antithesis of uh, Buster Keaton, who was the stone face. 
So it's uh, really funny that we're showcasing both these characters today. So I guess we have segued into the Mark of Sorrow in some capacity. Definitely. Let's get into it. And this is uh, the movie that has inspired, I would say, like all of the superhero movies of today or the superhero stories that have come out in the 1900s. I mean, it was a a direct influence on uh, the creation of Batman and uh, Superman as well. And I can imagine that the creators of Batman and Superman who invented these characters in the late 30s were... Well, little guys uh, watching Mark of Sorrow when it came out uh, in 1920. Sitting front seat all bug-eyed. We get some really bug-eyed bad guy acting (laughs) early on here. I mean, uh, this guy Gonzalez, he is all glares and rolling eyes and clawing and clenching his fists. This uh, melodramatic acting has really uh, taken hold. I think we we saw in the early movies there was maybe a possibility of different routes for acting. We saw some examples of of a more um, restrained acting. Okay, so more realistic acting uh, was a thing, but uh, here we have this uh, more melodramatic, uh, overplayed acting. And I mean, realistic acting is probably uh, apparent in other sort of movies. We we have a pretty narrow uh, span here looking at action movies, but melodrama is already a big influence on action cinema, you could say. As you said, Sergeant Gonzalez is uh, shown here in the first scene. It's a bunch of soldiers that are being uh, scared of this Zorro character that has appeared, and they're all at this hacienda, pub or bar-like thingamajig. A tavern or something. Yeah, I really like this setup where they talk about the main hero, and we don't see him yet. So different people tell stories about him, building up this myth. I like the intertitle that says, This sorrow comes upon you like a graveyard ghost. That's a lot like Batman as well. Definitely in the Tim Burton Batman movie, uh, there's villains talking about Batman in sort of the same way. You have this uh, Z mark on a guy's uh, chin. Sorrow marks his uh, victim's with a Z somewhere. And this was an invention of Douglas Fairbanks. This wasn't in the original book about Zorro. So this was all Fairbank flair. So they're talking about Zorro. Sergeant Gonzalez becomes all boasting. Says uh, Zorro ain't got nothing on me. And he walks around in a very peculiar way. He doesn't bend his knees. He he walks around with straight legs. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, I'll carve Gonzalez all over his body. And he's clenching his fists, doing the pirate uh, Popeye face. This guy goes all in. And now we get our main uh, hero in his uh, alter ego. Don Diego enters with an umbrella and posh clothes and a cape. Just like Superman. And he has this hunched frame here as well. He's like a skulking, shy vampire with an umbrella. He sort of slumps against the table in a very weird way. It isn't natural for shit. I don't know what he's doing here, but um, he, he he comes across like a sort of nincompoop, like a very affirmative uh, man, very non-threatening. He's like the 
total opposite of what sorrow is. And uh, this was also something that they uh, they took from this character when creating Superman, for instance, and uh, making Clark Kent uh, like a total dweeb. This uh, vampire analogy gets some more heft through an uh, intertext that says, Sorrow takes any shape. He wills appear through keyholes. <laughs> so I like how they, they spook each other with these tales. Because when someone knocks at the door, it, it isn't sorrow. Uh, everyone is scared. <laughs> and here you have an example of how they used sound effects uh, in these movies as well. Because the music is playing like all the time and is being super irritating. But when they are thumping on the door, it actually mimics that with the music. So that was a nice thing, I thought. This was one of few movies so far that I've watched with the music. Usually I, I just watch these silent. And maybe that's for the better in most cases. And I like the suggestion, suggestion that Gonzalez gets to get Sora to show up. Pick on a priest or a native. And a whole bunch of so-called natives just suddenly happens to crouch in fear by the fireplace. Gonzalez starts to mistreat them. And Sora shows up in a second. When he enters, he, he hides his face behind the cape and... Uh, sneaks about and closing all the windows and everybody's just like hmm who's this fella seems kind of odd <laughs> uh, very intimidating and he certainly intimidates the shit out of every single soldier in here they all run to the bar disc and sort of hangs around in one big uh, lump over there they become an audience to the sword fight that commences between Sergeant Gonzalez and Zorro. Sergeant Gonzalez doesn't stand a chance. Did Zorro put in an, uh, hey, you didn't tie your shoelace glance there? Oh, maybe, maybe. We get some swashbuckling. They're fencing around and uh, Zorro is playing with Gonzalez from the get-go. Yeah, and we get some early rudimentary prop work, flipping some chairs and table and stuff. I really like when he catches a small bench with the sword and flicks it back in Gonzalez's head. This destruction of the room, it reminds me a bit of some of the best fight scenes in the James Bond movies that we'll get to later on. Much later on. <laughs> this is an early precursor. Yeah, and I really liked his move when he was sitting on the table fencing. Was this in this fight or was it in another fight? I can't remember. Uh, well, in one of the fights, he's like, uh, he's propped up on the table in like a lotus stance, like he's doing yoga or something. And he just sits around casually and fencing the bad guys. There is this guy with a great reaction shot at uh, <laughs> 2152. Oh. Uh, I think he must be Colin Farrell's grandpa or something. <laughs> I urge you to uh, check this guy out. Sorrow makes a great jump onto the mantelpiece as well. I mean, you, you sure get your money's worth for Fairbanks acrobatics in this scene. And so finally, there comes uh, some other bad guys uh, that are thumping on the door again. All the bad guys in there who is like being taken hostage by Zorro is like, oh yeah, now we're getting you. Haha, <laughs> you can't get away from us now. So then Zorro, he fools everybody out of the hacienda following him. And then he goes back into the hacienda and he waits for everybody to come back. Hey, where did he go? I can't find him. And then he leaves the hacienda. But what the hell kind of a hairstyle does he have? Oh yeah, we need to talk about his hairstyle. I mean... What is going on? 
It sort of looks like he has devil's horns with his hair. How did he get away with that in the 20s? They are uh, stuck to his uh, forehead, like to sweaty. Yeah, like glued on to the scalp. Is it uh, a devil in disguise that Don Diego also is sorrow and, and hint or something? It is, it is very weird that he's laughing all the time as Zorro. I mean, what the f- what is going on? He's like an insane person. Well, it's funny, but it's weird. He is pretty insane as Don Diego. He has this fascination for sleigh of hand tricks with his uh, handkerchief that we'll get to. Don Diego is to meet a woman uh, called Lolita that his father thinks he should uh, at least marry. At least marry. (laughs) He should marry because he's just uh, loitering about. Doing uh, tricks and uh, playing with uh, his uh, shadow puppeteer hands on the wall and stuff. <laughs> he looks like he's pushing 30 or, or something and his father is just, oh man, this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Fairbanks was like 37 or 38 here, so he was pretty old, you know. Yeah, when he meets, uh, the, the first thing he tells her when he meets her is, uh, my father insists that I get married. It's an awful nuisance. <laughs> Pretty odd uh, atmosphere at their uh, get-together here. He throws some pervy glances, brags about his furniture, does a comedy routine with his handkerchief that she does not want to see. And then he just uh, up and says, I think I've said everything. I'll run along now. But before he says that, uh, he's talking about how he wants to delegate the courting bit to his servant. Uh, He has a servant who likes to play the guitar and does it well. I'll ask him to come around and serenade you at your window. Whereby she uh, answers, Oh, and I have a serving lady who likes to listen to music. She will listen to this. (laughs) So when he, he has run along, she says to her parents, He isn't a man, he's a fish. Yeah, great insult. And then Sorrow returns to harass uh, this girl for some reason. Uh, Yeah, it's weird. Why does he need Sorrow to love this woman? He doesn't know that she likes Sorrow because she has said that to to her father in an earlier scene. Oh, that Sorrow is a great... uh, He's fighting for the poor and uh, the unjust treatment of uh, the the natives and all that stuff. But he doesn't know that. So why does he feel the need to dress up like Sorrow and uh, try to impress on her or accost her or something like that? So she slaps him silly and he just laughs like a madman. And then they sit down and talk about how beautiful she is. Yeah, it's a great conversation starter. (laughs) Uh, And the troops arrive and give chase. Yes, and uh, Commander Ramon stays and uh, tries to court this lady as well. It's sort of a triangle drama, only that she isn't interested in Ramon at all. No, it's a pretty good uh, shot between them when uh, when Ramon stares with intent at her and she looks like she's falling asleep. So Sorrow shows up and he has like a mini fight with Ramon. They're shuffling around some furniture and uh, he elopes. 
Lolita's family, the Polidos, they visit at Diego's a couple of days when he's out of town to check out this uh, richly furnished crib that he has uh, bragged about earlier. And he's so bored when she's around. I'm, uh, Don Diego is super bored of uh, poor Lolita. Ramon comes around again, and this time, he, I mean, he's a real douche. He tries to... Uh, yeah, he's all nasty. He tries to kiss her without consent and stuff like that. And Zoro appears to save her. Now they uh, have a better fight. They're jumping around furniture, the fencing, some nice stuff. And we get a really nice mirror image from Zoro's sword. The reflection in the blade. Yeah, of a Z that uh, Zoro imprints on Ramon. It's like mirrored in the sword. Great shot. When he does a takedown, we get a close-up of the legs uh, doing their uh, stuff on the floor. But the prop work doesn't feel uh, yet fully implemented. They kick a few chairs around for no apparent reason, and then Zoro picks up and puts down a, a, a candlestick. Yeah, he should have used that all right. He does use a sofa very nice. He jumps up and sort of balances uh, the sofa on barely landing. He's like balancing the sofa uh, and then falls over with the sofa and and keeps on fighting. Uh, That was a nice image, I thought. Yeah, I think Fairbanks is really good uh, with his expensive furniture. (laughs) In all of the movies I've seen so far, he uh, excels at uh, jumping around furniture. He has some really weird fake mustaches as uh, Zorro. I mean, that was a thing in the early 1800s where this is taking place. Fake mustaches. They're like two tiny mustaches that is being implemented on on, like the ending of the... sort of like uh, where the uh, curve of the mouth is. I mean, what the hell was he thinking? This was a thing? Oh, yeah, weird. I think it complements the hairstyle. Oh, I think the mustaches should have been a bit twirled in that case. Well, Don Diego is back home. All Lear Gaze's weird hairdo, fiddling his hat. Have you seen this one? <laughs> he says. <laughs> and starts out one of his handkerchief tricks. I mean, she really hates them. <laughs> I love her looks when he starts with his handkerchiefs tricks. And, and it isn't like he is so that uh, into it as well. I mean, he's like the world's most bored magician who tries to impress with a handkerchief. But she she really sells these gags with her deadpan, um, oh man, this geezer. Get in the fuck out of here. She's like the Keaton to the Fairbanks of this movie. So my mind started to drift here for a while, and suddenly they are whipping an old monk. Well, the movie gets really boring here. They're trying a lot of plot, and the plot isn't that great. It's sort of like uh, Zorro needs to gather up the caballeros of the neighborhood, the noblemen of the Mexico country, to uh, take down this governor who is uh, implementing this terror Reich. But I mean, past the one hour mark, one starts to wonder why this thing is almost two hours, 147. And it could easily have thrown in more handkerchiefs tricks (laughs) to Lolita's dismay. That would have been so much better, absolutely. So they're like beating up a priest and Zoro gets uh, back at them. Somebody says, it's adventure, let's do it for sport. Then 
uh, well, people running around. Meanwhile, at home, Don Diego amuses himself doing some shadow puppetry on the wall. But the caballeros are out chasing for Zorro now. The noblemen, they all round up at Diego, Zorro's uh, dad's house, or, or Zorro's house. Yeah, for a drink. Yeah, and, and Zorro's dad, I mean Don Diego's dad, he's really pissed that uh, Zorro has become this uh, fancy boy, I don't know. <laughs> he has unnobled his blood. He's been to Spain for three months and uh, now he's like this. What happened to my son and all that? He uh, turned his blood to water. Absolutely. And so uh, Don Diego tires of the company and goes to bed. They start to having a bit of a party and then Zorro shows up and says, Hey guys, you should follow me. No, no, no. He says, you idlers, you wasters, you fashion plates. Oh yeah, you fashion plates. That's a nice insult. (laughs) What is that? I don't know, but I love it. So anyway, Zorro gets a lot of buddies and... uh, they all sort of... They're gonna defeat oppression for honor and blood. And the Politos have been put in jail. Lolita's family. So to the rescue. Absolutely. And everyone rides around for a while. And Captain Ramon, he, he kidnaps Lolita. No one notices. And Sorry leaves a message. I'll be in town uh, for breakfast. Yeah, he leaves that message on like a tree or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, but... he dares anyone to come and disturb him. They're out riding in the bush uh, chasing Zorro and uh, <laughs> he taunts them with this message. And finally we get the big set piece. Yeah, this is the set piece that this movie is famous for. There's a lot of compilation movies on Fairbanks that definitely includes this. Uh, it's the classic Fairbanks parkour chase material. Oh yeah, this is early parkour awesomeness. I mean, he jumps around this town like uh, the Hulk or something. He's everywhere at the same time. It's fantastic. Climbing, jumping, swinging, slipping, scaling between balconies, rooftops, uh, walls, buildings, donkeys. You have it. Did he break a sword in a guy's head? <laughs> I think he did. And I mean, the way he jumps over things, I mean, it's, I can't find words for it. He is like, it looks like he's shooting out of a cannon or something. It's in the ease with how he does these things. He's like a cat. I mean, uh, nothing faces him really. And I really liked the, the way he used a cart to get up on the second floor of a house. He just props uh, the cart uh, horizontally up against the house and shimmies up uh, (laughs) to the window or to the door. It's a fantastic shot, uh, like most of these shots. I mean, this uh, sequence is like three, four minutes long, and it's one of the best things in in cinema, I think. And then he stops for a fika. Yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, sort of like um, in the middle of this chase, he just uh, pops into this hacienda and uh, has breakfast. Everybody is running around uh, outside and he's like, "Ah, I'm having breakfast, just like I told you I would. And he also does a a plummet into some hay, sort of like uh, in the Assassin's Creed games. Well, I mean, he does it all before anyone. So, yeah, he should seriously get some uh, props Props to smash in someone's head. So, anyway, everybody assembles at uh, Don Diego's house where Ramon has uh, taken uh, Lolita. It's time for some swashbuckling at Don Diego's house. Yeah, fencing with this uh, Captain Ramon character. 
and he's carving a Z in his uh, forehead. Inglorious Bastards uh, must have been inspired by this one as well. That one is some kind of sorrow, war exploitation, Jean-Luc Godard crossover thingy. I mean, this episode is like, it only consists of the line, oh, and, and this uh, inspired this movie, and this thing inspired this character. Well, it says a lot about uh, Douglas Fairbanks' contribution to action cinema. And so the movie ends with Zorro jumping onto the balcony where Lolita is standing. And now he's uh, Don Diego and has uh, revealed himself to everybody. This last fight he, he do as uh, Don Diego. So he's out of the furniture. The cat is out of the bag. So she says, you look, talk and fight like Zorro. And he answers, and I love like Zorro. Ooh. And then we get my favorite scene of the movie, actually where they actually use the handkerchief for some good. Uh, they use the handkerchief to shield themselves from everybody who is down below the balcony looking up at them to have a kiss behind the handkerchief. And some wind blows up and uh, reveals them as they kisses each other. And finally, Fairbanks uh, sort of uh, positions the handkerchief right so that they can keep on kissing. And you can see Lolita's fingers on the um, on the handrail of the balcony going bananas with her fingers on the handrail. <laughs> A really nice touch. And this concludes our movie. And so we're going to focus on maybe a couple of movies per year from now on. And I mean, there's some other stuff being made. I think the Japanese has made some stuff now, but I don't think we will find any of, of the 20 stuff. I noticed that the last of the Mohicans pretty dated overall but had a pretty cool uh, mass scenes and a fight with some point of view shots with people attacking with knives and stuff. And Harold Lloyd as mentioned earlier is uh, revving up trying out some high-rise balancing acts, I guess in preparation for his big movie, Safety Last. That's uh, 1924, yeah. But uh, just to finish this episode, if you don't mind, I would like to quote a critic on A Modern Musketeer, another Fairbanks movie, his first swashbuckling movies in the tens, where the critic wrote... Douglas Fairbanks makes the Dumas swashbuckler seem a popinjay, a milksop, a wearer of wristwatches in times of peace, a devotee of the sleeve handkerchief, a nursery playmate, an eater of prune whip, a drinker of pink lemonade, a person susceptible of hay fever, a wearer of corn plasters, a habitue of five o'clock teas, a reader of Pollyanna.